we live in environments that expose us to so many harmful things that actually are cutting short our life expectancies, that are either cutting short our dreams or cutting short our economic potentials, that I want us to learn to be more cognizant of systems. And if any public health physician is worth its, 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 its weight, we want you to learn systems because if you can understand systems, then you can connect the dots and you can know the things you can do to not only keep you healthy, but to keep your household healthy, to keep your community healthy, to keep your city healthy, to keep your state healthy. And I want that level of awareness to be awakened in every American because we can't afford to lose like this again. You're listening to Dr. Chris Purnell, She's a public health physician living and working in New Jersey. She joined us this week, and as you just heard, she made it clear exactly why it's time for a system check of American public health. On this episode of System Check, we talk with Professor Monica McLemore, Associate Professor of Family Healthcare Nursing at the University of California, San Francisco. And Dr. Chris Purnell comes back for a powerful final word you do not want to miss. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. Okay, Dorian, did you ever want to be a medical doctor? What do you mean, Melissa? I hold an MD from the University of Illinois, and I'm a board-certified, you know, radiologist. <laughs> Seriously, though. Yeah, right. Okay. Seriously, you know, I was originally hoping to become an athletic trainer and a sports psychologist. And one semester Ooh. in college, honestly, I couldn't take the bodies in anatomy class. I didn't have the stomach for it, so I had a total career change. But, but how about you? It's probably about the same way I ended up as a political scientist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I toyed with it for a minute as a kid, you know, grow up and be a doctor. But then I actually spent a few high school summers volunteering at the hospital um, on the military base uh, near my home, Fort Lee. And I learned pretty quickly that whatever my talents are, <laughs> I do not have what is needed to study medicine or deliver care to patients. In fact, I am pretty sure that those summers are the reason that in college, I majored in English. But that said, my brief brush with daily life in a hospital did give me a lifelong respect for frontline doctors, nurses, and staff who provide the daily care to, to the sick and injured. And for the most part, Dorian, that's how I've always really thought about healthcare. Like an individual has a symptom, a condition, a concern, maybe like a sprained ankle or worrisome mole, or maybe just the need for an annual physical. So they go to a clinical space, like a doctor's office or a hospital, and there they meet with a competent provider, like a nurse, a PA, or a physician. They receive treatment, care, a prescription, maybe just good advice. And then ideally, they return to health, which is basically the absence of whatever symptom sent them into care in the first place. Yeah, that's interesting, Melissa. And you're not alone in this perception of health and healthcare because the U.S. does not provide universal health care access to our citizens. And health care has appeared as a top issue in American elections since at least the 1950s. And it's almost always framed in exactly the way you just described. Healthcare debates tend to be limited to discussions about 
who is responsible for ensuring individuals can pay to have one-on-one interactions with doctors in order to receive treatment for their individual conditions. And this way of thinking about healthcare has made it easy for opponents of healthcare reform to deploy that tried and true scare tactic, the boogeyman that government's going to get between you and your doctor. Dorian, do you remember those 1994 Harry and Louise commercials paid for by the Health Insurance Association of America? Mm-hmm. They spent billions to defeat the Clinton health care reform proposal by producing these kind of slick, except actually not slick, right? But really highly effective vignettes featuring hardworking Harry and Louise sitting at their kitchen table, fretting over big, bad government making medical costs higher. This was covered under our old plan. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Things are changing, and not all for the better. The government may force us to pick from a few healthcare plans designed by government bureaucrats. Having choices we don't like is no choice at all. They choose. We lose. For reforms that protect... Melissa, how could I forget those commercials? They were all over my TV as a teenager. It was it was in the moment, right, of my political awakening around a range of things. And the Harry and Louise campaign is, by the way, a classic example of misinformation. This ad campaign implied Americans were about to lose private health insurance when the reality was precisely the opposite. Tens of millions of Americans had no private insurance to lose. And in 2010, before passage of the Affordable Care Act, nearly 47 million Americans had no health insurance at all. Even today, a decade after the ACA, 20 million Americans are still without coverage. And it's ludicrous to think of insurance companies blaming the government for restricting individual medical choice. It's actually insurance companies that manipulate the care patients receive by choosing which courses of action, which medications, and which providers will be covered by individual plans. And of course, before the ACA, health insurance companies could refuse coverage altogether to individuals who needed it most by refusing to insure people with pre-existing medical conditions. Now, despite these blatant inaccuracies, the framing of healthcare as a private, personal relationship between doctor and patient was and is powerful. You're right. I mean, so much so that that individualistic framing of healthcare was still dogging Democrats and President Obama when they finally managed to pass the Affordable Care Act in 2010. And it's continued to structure the healthcare discussion really for the past decade. Personal insurance, personal choice, personal health. What we're missing is a robust, sustained discussion about public health. Public health is actually a very long field, not only a field of study, but a practice that is really grounded in understanding that the needs of groups of individuals or populations of individuals have needs that fundamentally should be protected and or uh, safeguarded based on a certain set of criteria. The simplest way to say it is public health is you know, understanding the the levers that are required in order to support the, the wellness and health of groups of individuals based on certain characteristics versus, you know, I skinned my knee, I need an x-ray, I need to make sure I didn't break something. 
This is Monica McLemore. She's Associate Professor of Family Healthcare Nursing at the University of California, San Francisco, where she's an affiliated scientist with the Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health and a member of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. Professor McLemore was a practicing public health and staff nurse for 28 years before earning her PhD and becoming an academic researcher and professor. She joined System Check this week to help us understand what public health is and how our system of public health works. I am a public health trained nurse who, you know, claims both domains because the skill set that people have in health services provision sometimes is quite complementary to the skills that are required in public health and vice versa. But to be very clear, neither are required to just be the one, if that makes sense. So you can be a physician and not necessarily be a public health expert, and you can be a public health expert and not necessarily be a clinician. As both a clinical and public health nurse, Professor McLemore asked Dorian and me to shift our perspective, thinking of health not as the exclusive domain of a private body, but health as an indicator of the body politic. Not just my health, but our health. If we do that, then determining health is not just about my blood pressure, my HIV status, my joint pain. Health is about whether our environment, our jobs, our schools, our communities, our systems allow for full, active, engaged, flourishing lives for everybody. And just as there are indicators of personal health, there are indicators of public health revealing whether the body politic is fit and well or sick and ailing. So there is this document, which is a roadmap that is put out jointly by the federal agencies that are responsible for health that all fall under the Department of Health and Human Services, right? Whether you're the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, or the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or ARC, or NSF, or all the alphabet soup you want. We have a roadmap that is put forward to say, these are the goals we would like to attain. These are the public health goals. There is a document. You just knew there was going to be a document, right? (laughs) System checkers. So the document is the Healthy People Report. The first Healthy People Report was released by the Surgeon General in 1979. And a new one has followed every decade, 1990, 2000, 2010, and 2020. Each report sets clear goals and benchmarks for the public health system to work to achieve before the next report. 10 years ago, the Department of Health and Human Services launched Healthy People 2020. Now stay with me, it tracks 1,300 objectives organized into 42 topic areas, and it sets out 12 leading health indicators with 26 objectives identified as high priority health issues. Now, Melissa, did you catch all those numbers? (laughs) Because if you didn't, you can go to the CDC website. And there you're going to find detailed progress reviews addressing these targets. Now, the issues are as diverse as, say, respiratory disease and sleep health or food and product safety or mental health and substance abuse or environmental health and family planning. In short, Healthy People 2020 is a public health roadmap. It's comprehensive. It's complex. It's data-driven, well-documented, and accessible. And guess what? Almost no one knows about it. This isn't new. Public health is not new. And I would be remiss if I didn't say this, right? We have actively been defunding, defunding public health 
And that is why it is hard for the public to understand its essential work. The second thing about public health that's really, really hard that folks don't understand is if we are doing our work in public health, it's usually invisible. It's just like nursing care. It's just like very good nursing care. If you get very good nursing care, that is invisible to you. So this was an aha moment. We don't really notice when the system of public health works. If it's achieving its goals of preventing disease, eliminating disparities and promoting good health, then it's pretty easy to ignore it. And to assume that our individual behavior or or maybe our private health insurance is solely responsible for our well-being. I mean, who takes much notice if you go to the sink, turn on the tap and get a clean, clear stream of safe, potable water? I mean, almost no one. But everyone notices if you turn on the spigot and find yellow-tinted, sour-smelling, lead-filled poison flowing out the way the people of Flint, Michigan did in 2014. Yeah, and to use that Flint example, Melissa, the entire country became just like Flint this year because the metaphoric water is no longer running clean. During the 20th century, our public health system delivered successes that fundamentally altered our lives, but also receded into the kind of invisibility that clean running water has for most of us. Think childhood vaccinations, or food safety, Mm. or workplace safety, or fluoridated drinking water, or access to family planning, or restrictions on tobacco. These are all victories of American public health, and all became relatively easy to ignore, even though they altered the length and quality of life in this country. So much so that in the 21st century, we receded from public investment, starting with Reagan, The federal government instituted massive tax breaks for the rich and for corporations, while, of course, refusing to repair the nation's crumbling infrastructure, while, of course, shredding the social safety net and by systematically defunding the system of public health. Just in the past decade, the CDC's core budget has been essentially flat. Spending for state public health departments has dropped by 16% per capita, and spending for local health departments has fallen by 18%. Nearly 40,000 state and local public health jobs have disappeared. Then, 2020. And suddenly, the deadly consequences of that divestment in public health were laid bare. The Trump administration and its enablers, yes, actual people making life and death decisions, the administration completely failed on the nationally coordinated response. And the bare-bones state and local infrastructure could not step in. The result? Since March, we have lost 286,000 Americans to the coronavirus. Well, what would you expect from a defanged, defunded institution that had no authority or autonomy? to be able to protect the health of the nation. How were they supposed to do a good job? So I'm not willing to throw public health under the bus because they didn't have the essential tools that they needed in order to optimize a response. Like, here's a perfect example. I said this yesterday. Why doesn't the Department of Health and Human Services have a podcast? Why, remember when we was all glued to the Cuomo briefings in March? Why are we watching one state's noon briefings? In a country, last time I checked, had 49 other states. And just to make it very simple, if you socially distanced and you wore a mask and you were smart, none of this would be a problem. It's all self-imposed. It's all self-imposed. If you didn't eat the cheesecake, 
you wouldn't have a weight problem. It's all self-imposed. So Michael Moore makes a good point here. It is odd that somehow Governor Cuomo took up so much space in those early weeks and months of the pandemic. But surely it was because of the massive and quite noticeable void in public health leadership at that time. Overnight, the the utter inadequacy of an individualized, exclusively personal framework for thinking and talking about health became obvious. We were in the grips of a global pandemic, of of a highly infectious, extremely contagious, brutally deadly disease. This wasn't just about having health insurance in order to cover your personal COVID treatment, because there was no effective treatment. Hell, initially, there weren't even enough tests. We needed information. How did this spread? Do masks help? Is it safe to go to school, to work, to the grocery store? If you got it, would you survive? (laughs) Would your grandmother? Would your son? If you couldn't go to work, how were you going to pay the rent or buy those groceries? If your kid couldn't go to school, how could they learn to read? Again, do masks help? Should I take vitamin D? Is it enough to use hand sanitizer? And again, do masks help? But it's important for folks to know that right now, their risk as American citizens remains low. There are things that people can do to stay safe. There are things they shouldn't be doing. And one of the things they shouldn't be doing, the general public, is going out and buying masks. It actually uh, does not help. It's not been proven to be effective in preventing spread of coronavirus amongst the general public. And of course... For God's sake, who can I even trust? And even though a lot of these questions were motivated by the sense of personal panic a lot of us were feeling, they weren't really personal health questions. These are public health questions. In the early weeks and months of the COVID pandemic in the U.S., it was unreasonably hard to get clear, consistent answers. There's a minimum set of expectations that citizens should have from either their government or leaders, whatever. We're like, what's that minimum set? So, and we just gonna invest in that because that's a good thing to do. Versus we can't measure how many premature deaths that we present prevented, or we can't measure things that we've prevented. That 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 to me feels like a very novice way of thinking about structuring, you know, health and wellness over time, where we're all rate limited by the universal human experience of death. So, you know, I, I think that this idea that you somehow have to rationalize or justify measuring something that you've prevented gets disproportionately applied to public health. Because if you'll notice in other fields that, you know, let's say government levers fund without question, right? Because there is a, a public expectation that this is a, an essential function of government like the military, we don't beg them to measure the wars they've prevented. We don't ask that. We're like, that's not a thing. So we all decided that that was an essential public health or, or public benefit. So that just we just do that. Yeah, Melissa, I actually remember you just took me back to March when, you know, I, I run an organization of 90 staff in Washington, D.C., about half the staff work in D.C., and we had to answer this question, what do we do mm-hmm. in terms of the public health response, right? To your point, not just a personal response. And we didn't know, could we trust the CDC, which had been a trusted institution, at that point, putting out misinformation and lack of guidance 
it was, I, I just have to say, it, it was a, a confusing, troubling, distressing time when I had the responsibility of so many people's health and safety and livelihoods on my shoulders. I, I know you truly must have felt that as an organization leader who had to just decide, do you ask people to show up to the office or not? I I was thinking that was how I was feeling as a, as a teacher, as a professor. You know, our university was trying to give us guidance and they were saying, we will follow CDC guidelines. And really, for most of my adult life, that would have seemed fine. Okay, we'll follow CDC guidelines. But because they kept changing and in ways that didn't just seem to be about, well, learning more. I mean, it's one thing if the guidelines change because you're learning more about a new disease, but it also felt like the sand was shifting underneath us. We just couldn't get answers. We couldn't get answers, Melissa. And this comes to a question of resources. And in fact, Professor McLemore helped us understand that reframing health away from a private clinical model, right, and towards a more comprehensive public health model, it does have meaningful consequences for resource allocation. Because medical ethics says you should save the people that's most likely to survive. Public health ethics says you should distribute resources based on need. Pause, pause, right there. (laughs) (laughs) She went, (laughs) the record went, I'm going to need you to do that again and more slowly. (laughs) Clinical health ethics says, and public health ethics say, and walk us through that for a second. Okay. Clinical health ethics, when you're thinking about likelihood of survival in in pandemics or tragedies or disasters or anything like that, historically, clinical ethics have designated principles so the bedside people are not having to make like in real time decisions. Because what we're trying to understand is we want to save the people who are most likely to survive. Public health ethics, however, is different. And because public health ethics are really grounded in trying to optimize the conditions or curate the conditions of wellness, prevention is an essential piece of that. So public health ethics always states differently that it's not about who's most likely to survive. It's about how can we ethically distribute resources based on need. And, and so in our current moment of COVID-19, it's beautifully laying bare, in my opinion, the philosophical conflict between trying to impose or superimpose a clinical health services philosophy on a public health crisis. The implications of this are far reaching. Clinical health says, save the people most likely to survive. Now, maybe that explains why insurance companies defended their right to deny coverage to those with pre-existing medical conditions. But public health says, send the most resources to those with the most need. Following those guidelines would mean building more rural hospitals, ensuring Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities have greater access to care. It would also mean investing in everything from, say, grocery stores to elder care programs and communities least served by, yes, the private sector. Using public health as our guide will lead to dramatically different policy decisions. Here's the other way to say it, right? If, if we center the people who are most burdened, then quietly we should have a trickle up situation where everybody's care improves. Because if you're really pulling out of the, most, the, the populations of most 
diseased or the most sick or the most whatever, you're going to create programs, protections, innovations, all sorts of things that most likely everybody else is going to adopt too. And here's another thing we learned, Melissa. When we use a public health perspective, we begin to think very differently about the impending COVID-19 vaccines. Mm -hmm. Yes, the possibility of a safe, effective, and widely available, and yes, equitably distributed vaccine is almost inexpressibly thrilling, right? Uh, It's going to save lives. But a vaccine for COVID-19 is not a cure for what ails public health. I've lived long enough through HIV, Ebola, Zika, H1N1, right? I mean, so we as a species need to understand, or at some point we are going to learn, like I'm going to learn you, right? That we live with infectious agents. We live with other species on the planet. And, And to just assume that just because we can vaccinate ourselves from this one, what makes us think there won't be others? And there's, there's a couple of inherent assumptions in vaccinations, right? In the same way, I get my flu shot every year. We don't live without the flu. So from where I sit, they, again, this essential public health reframe is necessary, right? We're going to be free of the shelter in place, possibly, of COVID. We will be free of all the negative impacts and the inconveniences of our lives that have been attributed to COVID. But we're not going to be free from COVID. Right. Because we don't have any long term data on not only the efficacy or the safety of vaccination. We're everyone's assuming we're going to need a booster because of the way that messenger RNA works. That's why it's two shots. Probably going to need another one next year. Right. I mean, so and we also still have a, a whole group of individuals who median are experiencing symptoms three to six months after the actual you know, experience of the infection resolves. Look, I'm going to be the first one in line to get me some vaccine because I got stuff to do, right? And so I, I get that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I've been a nurse a long time. I've been a public health nurse a long time. And so there will be people who, there will still be clusters in the same way we have clusters of HIV AIDS now, right? We, there will still be individuals with exposure, at some point, we, we will probably have to deal with mutation because all the other SARS viruses have had some level of mutation. The inconveniences afforded by shelter in place might resolve, but we're not going to be living without COVID. And this is the sobering reality informed by the system of public health. Even with a vaccine, there is no single cure for our human vulnerability. We will always be just decades, maybe just years maybe only months away from the next infectious disease that threatens our lives and livelihoods. Personal health care, even expanded, even universal personal health care is not enough. We must have a robust, well-resourced, widely trusted system of public health. And stick with us because you do not want to miss this week's final word from Dr. Chris Purnell. What I've learned as a public health physician through this 
horrifying and devastating experience with the pandemic is that racism matters and racism kills and racism is sapping the strength of our entire nation. There have been decades of disparities research that I think was really academic for people coming from a theoretical space. But this pandemic um, is the collision of two pandemics, actually. It's the collision of systemic racism, which has been in the soil and root of this nation, and the collision of the coronavirus pandemic. One being fast, being that coronavirus pandemic, and one being slow, the systemic racism. And what we've seen and how black and brown communities have been devastated is the collision course of those two pandemics. And so I've learned that this nation can no longer pretend that it does not have a problem with systemic racism. I've learned that the academic medical complex can no longer, from a detached or theoretical space, um, talk about issues of racism because racism is the pre-existing condition here. This is Dr. Chris Purnell. We started this episode with her insights about our malfunctioning system of public health. Dr. Chris, as she's affectionately known, is living at every conceivable intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a board-certified public health physician in New Jersey, she was at the professional and geographic epicenter of COVID-19 when it began to cut its devastating path through the U.S. this spring. And the devastation was personal, not just professional for Dr. Chris. First, her sister, a breast cancer survivor, was diagnosed with COVID-19. And although she continues to suffer with its lingering effects, her sister survived. Dr. Chris's father did not. Dr. Chris Purnell's story of devastating personal loss is this week's final word. Back in the spring, Newark, New Jersey was very much the epicenter of the pandemic. And what I describe to people is that the epicenter landed on me personally. And what I mean the epicenter landed on me personally is I'm working in one safety net hospital and my father is dying in a hospital four miles away. My father's the bionic man, you know, a black man, 78, coming up in the Jim Crow South. My, my father was fiercely intelligent. That bionic man that survived the Jim Crow South, that bionic man that was self-taught, that bionic man, Melissa, who survived a diagnosis of HIV AIDS. Um, my father had been living with, let's say, his viral load undetectable for at least a decade, learning out how to keep himself healthy and loved his infectious disease doctor and you know, gifted me with this legacy and would often say to me, when I die, you make sure you tell people the fullness of my story. And so my dad had been diagnosed with end-stage lymphoma and we thought we we're going to lose him in the fall of 2019. But he lived. He fought to breathe and he lived. None of that could take my dad out, but coronavirus did. And I say that to people to show them how destructive it has been. He, he had even told us, he said, look, if I can't see my family, I'm not going to survive because I'm living just for, I'm living for you all. And so, you know, we, we tried to coax him through. My dad ultimately got out of the hospital on New Year's Day, January 2020. He goes into a subacute rehab to get stronger, to come home and live out the home stretch of his life, whatever that is, right? He gets what's called a line infection because he's on long-term antibiotics. 
And I say, with all of the medical science behind me, look, you need to send him to the hospital because he's had one of these before. And I want to make sure that he's going to get the right level of care. So my dad gets transported to the hospital and he's rock steady right? He, his, his vital signs are, are, are stable. He's laughing. He's talking. He's walking. He's demanding his favorite meals. <laughs> he's, being big Tim. he's being Big Tim. That's what we call my dad. He's being Big Tim. And then, you know, this pandemic is kicking up in the background and we're talking about it early March. You know, we're still waiting for placement to go back into subacute right? To go back into subacute, we're waiting for placement. Visitor restrictions hit and we're not able to see him every day, but I'm like, just hold on. We're going to, you know, we're going to do what we need to do to get you to a, another safety point. Then one day he gets violently sick, fevers, chills, can't breathe, vital signs, unstable. And that episode happens at least two or three more times. And the doctor says to me, we've got to test him. And I knew exactly what that meant. We've got to test them for coronavirus. So my dad got exposed to COVID-19 while in the hospital. And within two weeks of that diagnosis, he was gone. Um, it is that second week that was so hard for him. He ultimately stopped eating. The, the contact via the phone or virtual means was less frequent. And he slipped away. He slipped away at a time where the system was taxed. He slipped away at a time when I would call all day to get information. Can can you tell me what's going on with my dad? Can you tell me what's going on with my dad? But he left us with something very powerful. Coronavirus stole the life of Dr. Purnell's father, but it did not rob her of the determination to create a more equitable and accountable system of public health. After her dad's passing, Dr. Purnell joined the Moderna vaccine trial. And she continues to use her professional expertise and her personal story as tools for change. I'm trying to recruit people to public health. Look, we got to keep the whole community, the whole family, the whole society whole. Stories like my father's that have to be amplified. Um, It's stories about what he endured. It's stories how lives were snuffed out, Um, putting faces to the science, putting faces to the data, putting faces to the pandemic that are so vitally important so that we can learn how to keep people healthy. I really want us to focus on prevention. Right now, we're trying to prevent um, worse outcomes. Um, But we want to focus on prevention and how do we encourage, influence, increase people's likelihood that they can live full lives. And if I can use lived experience and narrative, we know the power of storytelling and narrative medicine. To do that, then I am game. Sign me up for that job. Before we close out this week's episode, we want to tell you about our live System Check event coming up on Saturday, December 19th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Indeed, Melissa. Join us for the very first System Check Holiday Book Club brought to you by The Nation, Community Change Action, and the Anna Julia Cooper Center. Now, we'll be sitting down with some authors of our favorite books from 2020 and previewing a few terrific titles coming in 2021. Think of this as a holiday feast, (laughs) a feast of words and ideas. (laughs) That's right, because remember, the most important system we have is the system of ideas. So 
Join Dorian and me as we talk with authors who are reshaping the world of ideas for the better. Mark your calendars for Saturday, December 19th at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Now you'll be able to watch the System Check Book Club on the System Check Facebook and YouTube channels. And you can find all the details about the book club at thenation.com slash system check. That's all one word, thenation.com slash system check. And that does it for this episode. Now remember, every week we give you a system checklist. It's a brief list of realistic, practical actions that you can take to help repair the systems that we check in each episode. You can find the system checklist in all of our episodes at thenation.com slash system check. All one word. That's thenation.com system check. After you listen, be sure to check out this week's actions and help share them widely. We do have the power to repair or even transform what's broken. Thanks for listening. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And you've been listening to System Check. System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Dee Dee Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of The Nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.